0: Section 4 of Bailed Hay by Bill Nye. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Bill Nye's Cat. By Permission. I am not fond of cats as a general rule. I never yearned to have one around the house. My idea was that I could have trouble enough in a legitimate way without adding a cat to my woes. With a belligerent cook and a communistic laundress, It seemed to me most anybody ought to be unhappy enough without a cat. I never owned one until a tramp cat came to our house one day during the present autumn and tearfully asked to be loved. He didn't have anything in his makeup that was calculated to win anybody's love, but he seemed contented with a little affection. One ear was gone and his tail was bald for six inches at the end, and he was otherwise well calculated to win confidence and sympathy. Though we could not be madly in love with him, we decided to be friends and give him a chance to win the general respect. Everything would have turned out all right if the bobtail waif had not been a little given to investigation. He wanted to know more about the great world in which he lived, so he began by inspecting my house." He got into the storeroom closet and found a place where the carpenter had not completed his job. This is a feature of the Laramie artisan's style. He leaves little places in unobserved corners generally so that he can come back some day and finish it at an additional cost of $50. This cad observed that he could enter at this point and go all over the imposing structure between the flooring and the ceiling. He proceeded to do so. We will now suppose that a period of two days has passed. The wide halls and spacious facades of the Nye Mansion are still. The lights in the banquet hall are extinguished, and the ice cream freezer is hushed to rest in the woodshed. A soft and tearful yowl, deepened into a regular ringtail peeler, splits the solemn night in twain. Nobody seemed to know where it came from. I rose softly and went to where the sound had seemed to swell up from. It was not there. I stood on a piece of cracker in the dining room a moment, waiting for it to come again. This time it came from the boudoir of our French artist in soup-bone symphonies and pie, Mademoiselle Brigitte O'Dooley. I went there and opened the door softly, so as to let the cat out without disturbing the giant mind— that had worn itself out during the day in the kitchen, bestowing a dry shampoo to the china. Then I changed my mind and came out. Several articles of Vertu, besides Bridget, followed me with some degree of vigor. The next time the tramp cat yowled, he seemed to be in the recess of the bathroom. I went downstairs and investigated. In doing so, I drove my superior toe into my foot, out of sight, with a door that I encountered. My wife joined me in the search. She could not do much, but she aided me a thousand times by her counsel. If it had not been for her mature advice, I might have lost much of the invigorating exercise of that memorable night. Toward morning we discovered that the cat was between the floor of the children's playroom and the ceiling of the dining room. We tried till daylight to persuade the cat to come out and get acquainted, but he would not. At last we decided that the quickest way to get the poor little thing out was to let him die in there. And then we could tear up that portion of the house and get him out. While he lived, we couldn't keep him still long enough to tear a hole in the house and get at him. It was a little unpleasant for a day or two, waiting for death to come to his relief, for he seemed to die hard. But at last the unearthly midnight yowl was still. The plaintive little voice ceased to vibrate on the still and pulseless air. Later we found, however, that he was not dead. In a lucid interval he had discovered the hole in the storeroom where he entered, and as we found afterward a gallon of coal oil spilled in a barrel of cutloaf sugar, we concluded that he had escaped by that route. That was the only time that I ever kept a cat and I didn't do it then because I was suffering from something to fondle. I've got a good deal of surplus affection, I know, but I don't have to spread it out over a stump-tail orphan cat. Autumn Thoughts In the Rocky Mountains now the eternal whiteness is stealing down toward the foothills and the brown mantle of October hangs softly on the swelling divide. While along the winding streams, cottonwood and willow are turned to gold, and the deep green of the solemn pines lies farther back against the soft blue of the autumn sky. The sigh of the approaching storm is heard at eventide, and the hostile Indian comes into the reservation to get some arnica for his chilblain, and to heal up the old feeling of intolerance on the part of the pale-face. He leaves the glorious picture of mountain and glen, the wide sweep of magnificent nature, where a thousand gorgeous dyes are spread over the remains of the dead summer, and folding his teepee he steals into the home of the white man that he may be once more at peace with the world. The hectic of the dying year saddens and depresses him, for is it not an emblem to him of the death of his race? Is it not to him an assurance that in the golden ultimately, the red man will be sought for on the face of the earth and he will not be able to represent? He will not be there either in person or by proxy. Here and there may be found the little silent mounds with some glass beads and teeth in them, but the silent warrior with the Roman nose will not be there. The Indian agent will have a large conservative cemetery on his hands, and the brave warrior will be marching single file through the corridors of the Hents. At this moment he does not look romantic. Clothed in a coffee sack and a little brief authority, he would not make a good vignette on a five-dollar bill. His wife, too, looks careworn, and the old glad light is not in her eye. Pierre gunny sack dolman is not what it once was, and her beautifully arched foot has spread out over the reservation more than it used to. Her step has lost its old elasticity, and so have her suspenders. Autumn brings to her nothing but regret for the past and hopelessness for the future. The cold and cruel winter will bring her nothing but bitter memories and condemned government grub. The solemn hush of nature and the gorgeous coloring of the forest do not awake a thrill in her wild heart. She cares not for the dead summer or the mellow mist of the grand old mountains. She doesn't care two cents. She knows that no sealskin sack will come to her on the Christmas trees, and the glad welcome of the placid and select oyster is not for her. Is it surprising, then, that to this decaying bell of an old family the sparkle of hope is unknown? Can we wonder, as we contemplate her history, that to her the soldier pantaloons of last year and the bullwhacker's straw hat of seventy-nine are obnoxious? She is like her sex, and her joy is fractured by the knowledge that her moccasins are down at the heel, and her stockings exist in the realms of fancy. We should not look with scorn upon Mrs. Rise Up William Riley, for hope is dead in her breast, and the wigwam is desolate in the sagebrush. Daughter of a great nation, we are not mad at you. You are not to be blamed because the Republican Party has busted your crust. We do not hate you because you eat your steak rare and wear your own hair. It is your own right to do so if you wish. Brace up, therefore, and take a tumble, as it were, and try to be cheerful. We will not massacre you if you will not massacre us. All we want is peace, and you can wear what you like.' "'Only wear something, if you please, when you come into our society. "'We do not ask you to conform strictly to our false and peculiar costumes, "'but wear something to protect you from the chilling blasts of winter, "'and you will win our respect. "'You needn't mingle in our society much if you do not choose to, "'but wrap yourself up in most any kind of clothing "'that will silence the tongue of slander and try to quit drinking.' You will get along first-rate if you would only let liquor alone. Do not try to drown your sorrows in the flowing bowl. It's expensive and unsatisfactory. Take our advice and swear off. We have tried it, and we know what we are talking about. You have a glorious future before you. If you will cease to drink the vintage of the pale-face and monkey with petty larceny, look at Pocahontas and Mrs. Tecumseh. They didn't drink. They were women of no more ability than you have. But they were high-toned, and they got there, Eli. Now they are known to history along with Cornwallis and Payne. You can do the same if you choose to. Do not be content to lead a yellow dog around by a string and get inebriated, but rise up out of the alkali dust and resolve that you will shun the demon of drink. You ought to be ashamed of yourself.' THE MAN WHO INTERRUPTS I do not as a rule thirst for the blood of my fellow man. I am willing that the law should, in all ordinary cases, take its course. But when we begin to discuss the man who breaks into a conversation and ruins it with his own irrelevant ideas, regardless of the feelings of humanity, I am not a law and order man. The spirit of the red vigilanter is roused in my breast, and I hunger for the blood of that man. Interrupters are of two classes. First, the common plug who thinks aloud, and whose conversation wanders with his so-called mind. He breaks into the saddest and sweetest of sentiment, and the choicest and most tearful of pathos, with the remorseless ignorance that marks a stump-tail cow in a dahlia bed. "'He is the bull in my china shop, the wormwood in my wine, and the kerosene in my maple syrup. "'I am shy in conversation, and my unfettered flights of poesy and sentiment are rare. "'But this man is always near to mar all with a remark or a marginal note or a story or a bit of politics.' ready to bust my beautiful dream and make me wish that his name might be carved on a marble slab in some quiet cemetery far away dear reader did you ever meet this man or his wife did you ever strike some beautiful thought and begin to reel it off to your friends only to be shut off in the middle of a sentence by this choice and banner idiot of conversation if so come and sit by me and you may pour your woes into my ear, and I in turn will pour a few gallons into your listening ear. I do not care to talk more than my share of the time, but I would be glad to arrive at a conclusion just to see how it would seem. I would be so pleased and so joyous to follow up an antidote till I had reached the nub, as it were, to chase an argument home to conviction, and— to clinch assertion with authority and evidence. The second class of interrupters is even worse. It consists of the man, and I am pained to state his wife also, who see the general drift of your remarks and finish out your story, your gem of thought, or your argument. It is very seldom that they do this as you would do it yourself, but they are kind and thoughtful and their services are always at hand. No matter how busy they may be, they will leave their own work and fly to your aid. With the light of sympathy in their eyes, they rush into the conversation, and, partaking of your own zeal, they take the words from your mouth and cheerfully suck the juice out of your joke, handing back the rind and hoping for reward. That is where they get left, so far as I am concerned.' I am almost always ready to repay rudeness with rudeness and cold-preserved gall with such acrid sarcasm as I may be able to secure at the moment. No one will ever know how I yearn for the blood of the Interrupter. At night I camp on his trail, and all the day I thirst for his warm life's current. In my dreams I am cutting his scalp loose with a case knife while my fingers are twined in his clustering hair. I walk over him and promenade across his abdomen as I slumber. I hear his ribs crack, and I see his tongue hang over his shoulder as he smiles death's mirthful smile. I do not interrupt a man no more than I would tell him he lied. I give him a chance to win applause or decomposed eggs from the audience, according to what he has to say, and according to the profundity of his profund. All I want is a similar chance and room according to my strength. Common decency ought to govern conversation without its being necessary to hire an umpire armed with a four-foot club to announce who is at the bat and who is on deck. It is only once in a week or two that the angel troubles the waters and stirs up the depths of my conversational powers— and then the chances are that some leprous old nasty toad who has been hanging on the brink of decent society for two weeks slides in with a low kerplunk, and my fair blossom of thought that has been trying for weeks to bloom withers and goes to seed, while the man with chilled steel and copper-riveted brow and a wad of self-esteem on his intellectual balcony as big as an inkstand walks slowly away to think of some other dazzling gem, and thus be ready to bust my beautiful phantom and tear out my high-priced bulbs of fancy the next time I open my mouth. End of Section 4